Hey! Hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. This Wednesday is National Canadian Film Day, and my guest is Michael McGowan, who's made a bunch of Canadian films, among them St. Ralph, One Week, and Still Mine. His latest, All My Puny Sorrows, is an adaptation of the novel by Miriam Taves, starring Sarah Gadden and Alison Pill as sisters whose different personal trajectories have done nothing to affect the bond between them. It's now playing in Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, and it opens in Winnipeg this Friday. Michael picked Goodwill Hunting, Gus Van Sant's 1997 drama starring Matt Damon as a troubled South Boston kid who's also a secret genius. It catapulted Damon and his co-writer and co-star Ben Affleck to superstardom, and you know, they're both kind of great with Affleck's Chucky looking on with concern as Damon's brilliant will sabotages every opportunity for higher education, a comfortable future, and even a healthy relationship with mini-driver Skyler, until Will forges a connection with his therapist, Sean McGuire, played by Robin Williams, in a performance that earned him an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Affleck and Damon did okay for themselves too, if you recall. The whole thing was kind of a fairy tale. And now it's an episode. This is someone else's movie. So, so it's a film that I, I love and or loved and have watched a few times over the, since it's come out. But I think it, to me, is the origin story of two people that can write a screenplay and then it achieve sort of massive success as part of why, why I enjoy the film. I mean, looking at it again, there's obviously some problems with it, which we can, we can talk about it. But, you know, it, it's a fairly simple story. It's, it sort of goes in these tropes that we're familiar with this you know saving the the lost boy as he sort of tries to figure out his life um but i don't know i just i, I found it, it 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 still held me there i mean the the great scenes are the great scenes in it and uh i mean and and but mostly i think it was just at that time in indie filmmaking where at least i did you had this belief if you write it wrote a screenplay you could be sort of catapulted into the into the stratosphere, and I think that was sort of the. I mean, obviously they both acted in it, but that was sort of the Matt and Ben, the boy, you know, these young men. Their sort of origin story that I think really worked well for that whole campaign and and the success of that film. And then, in fact, and then also too that that film could have been made for ten million dollars and, and grossed two hundred and fifty five million worldwide. I just think those days are almost over right now. Um, in, oh, yeah. in film. So if, um, yeah, so it's, it's sort of the, the, I don't know, useless short answer of, of why I like the film. Yeah, it is really, I just did an episode on Kill Bill Volume 1 a little while ago, and that sort of is the tail end of the Weinstein-Disney Miramax confluence, where anything is possible if you are Quentin Tarantino and you already are an established property that they can get the money for. This was the opposite. As, as you say, this is the underdog version of that. And you see everything being brought to bear on the backstory, on the success story and the, 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 the entire legend that grew up around. And, and it's nothing at all. This is the thing that fascinates me about the movie, which I like a lot. It's nothing at all like the film that was pitched. Like the original script was a thriller. It was, you know, yeah. it's it's weirdly it prefigures, as I understand it anyway, it, it prefigures the born identity where somebody is hunted for his abilities, uh, in and it was a thriller with government intrigue and and guys being friends and fighting bad guys and and it's nothing at all like this gentle, beautiful little character study that's almost a two hander from scene to scene. Like it's always Damon and someone else. Yeah, but the re the refitting and the retro 
fitting of, of the premise. The one thing they saved apparently is the, well, the two things they saved are his genius and the scene with the first scene where he meets his therapist and everything yeah. else is different. It's, it's, it's incredible that it turned out as well as it did with all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this idea that they sold it to Castle Rock for $675,000 or $600,000 and it went into turnaround and then Kevin Smith sort of walked it into Harvey Weinstein's office and, right. and then Harvey said, okay, let's make this. And, you know, it was at, it was at that time where, I mean, Kevin Smith was one of the reasons I got into filmmaking. I, I watched Clerks and at the Toronto Film Festival and thought it wasn't like I, I really hadn't thought about it before I was doing journalism and stuff like that. And I watched that film and thought, well, I think I could do that. Like it wasn't so beyond, I don't know, like probably delusionally, but it wasn't like, it just seemed like not that far a leap from what he was doing to, Oh, you know, you can cobble together a small crew and make a film and, and then sort of have a, a roadmap to success as well. Like the brothers McMullen was out that time as well. And you sort of, you could pitch it to like, you could try to raise some money and, and pitch it to people and say, Hey, this is our idea. It's a long shot, but there is a roadmap to that. Um, and yeah, the, the fact that these, like, as you say, that whole idea that it was this thriller that he was going to work for the CIA or something like that. And and that, you know, this is where it ends up is, you know, if I'm here in 20 years, Ben Affleck, if you're here in 20 years, still working at this same place, I'm going to kill you. Like, literally, I'm going to kill you uh, is probably not the original movie that they <laughs> they set out to make. And I you know, sort of doing some research for this. I was surprised that I didn't really realize that Matt Damon went to Harvard because it was sort of like in the sort of the again, their origin story at that time there's this sort of these not idiots, but these two bumbling guys that had written a screenplay. And, and here we are on the Oscar, you know, at the Oscars sort of thing. Uh, and not that yeah. going to Harvard did, did that, but uh, did you know that at the time that he, he had been to, to Harvard and stuff? Yeah. I knew that neither of them was quite as Ruby as they pretended to be during the press tour. I mean, you, you right. can't be right. Like you can't be a working actor for five years even and yeah. have that level of, of naivete. Plus they, yeah. they made a movie, like they sold their script. They made a movie. They managed to act in it. It's like Stallone did that with Rocky. Nobody else did that. Um, so you're either sociopathically determined to get your way or you're talented enough to make good on it. So you could see them sort of playing into it and, and growing it up. And, and I guess yeah. in a way they're still expected to do that now. And it's become part of their persona, but they're both like the work they've done and the, and for all the foot and mouth moments they've had on the publicity tour where, you know, when you're one of the most famous people in the world, people are just waiting for a chance to misquote you or put you, you know, context where you look like an ass. They seem to be really decent people too. Like Matt Damon once stepped in and made Clint Eastwood answer a question from me that he tried to dodge on a, oh, on, really? a on a press junket. Yeah. So I owe him a fruit basket. Like forever. Yeah, no, they they do. I mean, I, I recently heard Ben Affleck on the the Bill Simmons podcast, and and he was talking about his father's alcoholism, and this is like I don't know, maybe it's four months ago, six months ago, or whatever, and how his father would show up hammered to his baseball games, and this sort of, and then you watch Goodwill Hunting, and you see the baseball game, and you see the drinking, you see all that, and it, and even though they weren't sort of maybe they were but Southie born and bred because they both had Harvard connections and you know all, sure. but there, there there was a truth in that that they obviously wrote in there from their own experiences and I think that that's where Van Sant comes in 
right? Like as a shaping element, as a force that steers the direction of the script into something that's more intimate and pure. He's, he's, um, he's one of those fascinating talents where when he's a right fit for something, he just makes every aspect of it better. And when he's not, there's, you can just tell there's nothing he can do. And what happened with Goodwill Hunting is this alchemy of him just watching, just, just loving the ability to watch the actors. Like you just feel how, 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 interested the camera is in in the interplay in the back and forth that's why every scene breaks down the way it does and just yep. turning it into a series of conversations between like people who can own the frame against robin williams or mini driver or or anybody else in these scenes who are just you know they're so much more famous i think is the hook right like Vincent knows that the joy of the movie is in watching these two relative unknowns become movie stars and he just finds a way to thread that in that's interesting. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, they they had obviously done stuff before, but it, and watching the the filmmaking, it, there's one scene in the psych uh, in Robin Williams office, and it was a long one. I forget which one it was, but they kept crossing like the dolly kept moving back and forth across the axis. And that to me seems like such a almost late 90s. Like I kept thinking, why is he like, why is he moving the camera back? On, why are we on this side? And now mm. why did like why does it go on this side? Like what reason uh was he doing that for? And I mean I, I agree with you. I think that they the way it was framed was like he let the actors it wasn't a it's not a flashy movie. Probably the flashiest part of the whole sort of flashy is the title sequence where those I don't know that prism stuff and everything else. Yeah. But most of it, he just lets the camera settle and, uh, and, and watch these people go. Um, the, what, the one thing that I found, I don't know what you've like watching it again. I found the score, even though it was nominated for an Academy Award, I did not like the score. I, I felt it was so over the top in parts that I kept thinking like, and it almost, it, again, I think it was far more the way to go. Then we're going to use orchestra. We're, I mean, Danny Elfman was the composer. We're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to have these big sort of orchestral moments. But I, a, a lot of times I felt like, Oh, I, I, maybe my ear is now more tuned to simpler, less demanding stuff. I mean, there was one shot when he was on the, on the subway going, I guess home or something like that. And it was just so big, but it was like, I'd rather find it in Matt Damon's face than yeah. have Danny Elfman hit me over the head with it. That felt like Weinstein to me, like the, that's the, true the, the movie needs to twinkle or people won't get it there. There's, this is something that's come up a couple of times and I never really know how to frame it, but for all the genuine physical harm Weinstein did to human beings, he, there's like a subsection of crimes against art that he committed over decades as running Miramax, you know, from cutting 10 minutes out of every movie he released to watching other things, uh, post-production tampering, interfering with, with like over, overlaying sure. a score on stuff here. I think because Van Sant was already established, he didn't get as much chance to do damage, but you can sort of feel the hand really heavily in the post choices like the score. I mean, compared to the Elliott Smith track, right. Which is so simple and, and right. pure. You have the music doing the work for you just in case there are people who aren't you know, like getting yeah, what's that- going on. You know, you know his his nickname, Harvey, in post production. Yeah, Harvey Cesarians. Yeah, that was the. Uh, yes, I met that guy one time at the Toronto Film Festival, and uh, <laughs> it took. We had some kind of. I had this film still mine, and uh, oh, yeah. so in those days, so that his underlings had seen it. So the thing was, we had to bring the Blu-ray to the Hazelton 
and wait because Harvey, God forbid, he could actually go see the actual or would want to see it in the screen. So you bring you bring the Blu-ray to the Hazel. I didn't ever meet him, but you just brought brought there and wait and then pick it up. Um, And uh, so a few years later, I was at a TIFF party and I'm standing beside Harvey. We're waiting to see somebody. And I sort of said, oh, I did this film with James Cromwell and Jean Viev that you'd saw. He looks at me, goes, yeah. I was like, oh, well, one word to figure out you're an asshole. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. My only experience with him was in Cannes. Um, and I was walking, Kate and I, Kate had come to stay for the last few days because, you know, hotel room in the south of France, how do you not? Yeah. Uh, and we were walking up from the croissette and he was blocking the entire street. And this isn't a fat joke, like he was occupying the space. Right. He was on a phone yelling, bellowing into a cell phone and just making sure everybody around him knew it and wouldn't like, we actually had to circumnavigate him. We had to walk all the way across and get around. It was a little, you know, a little winding street, but he was, he was making sure you couldn't get past him. And I just sort of shot up like an angry look at him and then kept going. And and Kate's like, did you know him? It's like, that's Harvey Weinstein. And that was my only experience with him. And then you find out about all this horrible, horrible shit that's going on. And she's like, that actually tracks. And it's just, yeah repulsive that someone was allowed to attain that level of power. But again, right. Like that's how that worked in the eighties. You just, you dominated and destroyed and and people got out of his way or let him because they could draft on him and be successful. And it's just, it's been really nice to watch the people he coddled come out of it and still be able to do stuff without being stunted or damaged like Tarantino and Rodriguez. And he protected a lot of filmmakers from making better films, I think, by giving them everything they wanted. But if you weren't part of his stable, he just didn't care and destroyed no, every, you. Yeah, yeah. And the power, I mean, you had to kiss the ring and you had to play by his rules. And I mean, it was, and it, again, it was sort of that time where, you know, he was the kingmaker. If, if, if he anointed you, you, your chances of success were so much greater. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and then, and, and he was looking for that stuff too. Like, it wasn't like he, you know, that was the mandate of that company, which made it exciting. And, and, and again, those origin stories were, you know, whether it's Kevin Smith or Matt and Ben, or, you know, there's a bunch of them in that time. Yeah. And to have something come out of it and not be as tainted, let's say, because Shakespeare in Love, the following year was, was the thing, like, Goodwill Hunting was, I think, the, the picture that, like, well, no, I'm getting ahead of myself because the year before Goodwill Hunting was the English patient, right? So there's a ladder effect of him just doubling down and tripling down on Oscar's contention. So right. Goodwill Hunting is 97, Titanic is the monster. It wins a couple of Oscars and deservedly so, but it energizes him to pursue. Like he really didn't become the the, the maniac for Oscar, uh, Oscar Uber Alice that he became until like 98, 99. So when was when was uh, so when was the English Patient? Because that that won a bunch of Oscars for him, English right? Patient was his first Best Picture, I think. That was ninety six, okay. Then ninety seven, and his films in contention are Goodwill Hunting, and oh, there was another one uh, that that but Titanic won. And then the following year is when he just destroys Saving Private Ryan in order to get Shakespeare in Love the Best Picture Oscar right. with the that, I think that was his first time that Whisper campaigns really worked for Miramax, and then then they just metastasized and everything got worse from there. Yeah, because he was the he was the one that sort of sort of tried to game the system, essentially, didn't he? Oh yeah, exactly. But in this case, you look back, and these are awards that work. Like the, uh, I'm I'm fine with original screenplay because the you know movie stars always win that category, and 
if, especially yeah. if they act in them themselves. And and um, and Robin Williams, who we haven't mentioned yet, uh, really is is great. Like there's something about this performance that captures. And again, again, I I credit it to Van Sant more than anybody else. His tendency for neediness in dramatic roles, like the way he always needed to be loved or to be hated, he he as an actor was really he wasn't a one note performer, but you could always feel him leaning into something if he yep. didn't believe in the part or he thought he saw it as a vehicle to an award. And Goodwill Hunting, I don't even know when it becomes his character's story, but it's so graceful the way that the movie lets him take center stage and his redemption is as important as, as Will's salvation. That, uh, yeah, that's well, I, think, I think it happens when they look at the picture and, you know, he goes, it's paint by number. And then he, he says, yeah, I know that, but look at the colors you choose. And you can see him just going. <laughs> and it, his performance is interesting because there's an ugliness to it in some way. I, I don't yeah. mean like there isn't, there's, it's sort of like, it's, it's unvarnished. And it was interesting to me because he started, I can't remember the middle one, but he sort of had a tick where he started the first scenes and said chief, like ended all the scenes in chief. And then, and I forget what the word in the middle one, sport, it was sport yeah. in the middle one. And then it was sun at the end. And it I, like, and I was thinking, I wonder how much of that was scripted, how much, because they never intermingled them, but it was sort of a progression of, you know, where, where he was going with his relationship with Will. And I do think that could have been, quite maudlin and it was verging on really riding the line between maudlin and believable or whatever but they just there was enough integrity to it and there was enough fucked upness about his own backstory yeah that they sort of it, it was complicated enough that it was you're always wondering where they were going to go um with the relationship and how they're going to figure it out and the fact that you know, when Matt Damon asked him at the end, well, do you have experience in this is like, you know, it kind of breaks your heart because you really like, that's sort of when you go, okay, that's that his, their origin stories are the same. It's not the Southie story. It's the abuse story. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a, tr- a tricky line to thread through the whole thing, which I think they did such a great job of. Yeah. And the idea too, that these people, these two men can be rescued by love. Or that they believe they can be, yeah. Uh, because because McGuire's wife is the reason that he became a better person, and the reason now that she's gone that he can't get out of the hole he's created for himself. But with Will and Skyler, the idea is that yes, he's brilliant and and he's got got an incredible memory and he can do almost anything he wants. But she's his equal anyway. That she just refuses to treat him as miraculous or special, and someone who can see you for the person you are rather than the skills you have, that seems to be the thing that, that saves will, or at least the possibility of it. And I just, I love the way that floats underneath all their interactions that um, both Skylar and Will and Will and, and McGuire's that they're never ever talking about it other than I'm going to go see about a girl, which is just so simple, so simple. And, you know, I know writers who would kill to come up with something like that. Well, that's, I mean, that's with every character. When you think of the Ben Affleck character, that's the reason he does not treat him as special. I mean, Mm -hmm. he says, like, you got to smarten up, you idiot, like, basically as a friend, not as a genius, but like, come on, man, like, you can't be taking this route. But he, it's the same thing. Those, I think they, those three have the same, you know, way of, what way of dealing with, with Will. And I do like that it is revealed over the course of the movie, like how 
why is this guy so fucked up? Why is like, what's going on? Like that fight. I mean, the fight scene was, they would never, I mean, Gus Van Zandt would never shoot that the way he did. <laughs> no, probably not. Not probably his finest moment, but there was again, at the end of that fight scene, when Will is beating the shit out of the guy, you go, that's like, that's, that's the most interesting thing because you're like, what, where is this rage coming from? It's a great way to reveal that rather than, I don't know, through in dialogue. We're going to find it at the end when it's, you know, it's not your fault scene, but it's great that you, you're sort of, it's almost like a mystery. You're all, you're just a step behind and without trying to feel like a mystery or you're, or you're being manipulated. I mean, now you just insert a reference to somebody being in prison or someone having, you know, been away for a while just to, to, to imply that there's a darkness in Will's background, but he's so, he's so in denial that the film is almost afraid to approach it, which I think is great. Like it's a, it's a, a beautiful way to bring it out at the end and make it feel organic to us while not surprising because yeah, as you say, we've seen the rage, we've seen the things that have, have clouded his life. We just don't know what they are. And again, like, Damon is so good at withholding. And I yeah. think you know, like no one gives him credit for the performance in this film, even now. Like he's, uh, you know, the, the mythology of it is that they flipped a coin, that it could have been Affleck playing uh, oh, really? Will. Yeah, this is, this is the story they were telling anyway, that it could have been Affleck playing Will and uh, Damon playing Chucky. And the thing I've always come back to is Damon could play Chucky, but I don't think Affleck could have played Will. Not in the same way. Not then. I bet he could now. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, because it, it's interesting in Goodwill Hunting and watching Tender Bar. Yeah, there's there's a lot of similarities. Uh, I feels like I mean, Goodwill Hunting. I feel like is a much better film. But there's you know, here's the car at the end. There 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 are a lot of sort of tropes that they're they're echoing. And uh, I, I there's but there's something about Ben Affleck's. Yeah, I think he could play it now. I mean, obviously he can't play yeah. twenty years. But I, I agree. He was too much. Um, he was also too much the guy that was in dazed, or whatever his name was, in dazed and confused. He like you could right, see, yeah. you could see the uh, the echoes of the frat bro meathead. Whereas Damon, you believed he was a genius, and you believed he was totally fucked up, but yet had a heart of gold in some ways. Like it wasn't his fault. Well, as they say, it wasn't his fault. Yeah. And it's not, yeah, it's true. It's not Affleck's fault that he would have been unconvincing then. And I think you're right now. I think now he could play Maguire, which would be really interesting in like as a thought oh, experiment. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's incredible. I mean, you think of that guy's career. I mean, you think of like a film like Argo, which, you know, just what that took and, and the tone of that and his performance mm-hmm. in that. And it's like, you know, he's obviously made a murderer's row of shitty films, but he's also, you know, a highly intelligent guy who thinks about things and, I feel like there's, I mean, just his life experiences too. Uh, yeah, it's true. I don't mean to denigrate Affleck as an, as an actor at all. I think like, I, I do think actually in the tender bar that his feature length impersonation of, of George Clooney is amazing. Like he's just, he's internalized all of Clooney's direction and also is is reflecting that back at him. And I, nobody else was writing about it, which really shocked me. It's like, that is funny and interesting. Yeah. The way like he's throwing away the lines and he's doing the thing with his with his his forehead to kind of keep his his eyeline low and just throwing like just snapping his dialogue off the way that Clooney does. And it's so clear that either they love this, the two of them, and they're just doing it to to enhance the movie, or Affleck is just introducing something and Clooney is keeping it. But either way, it's kind of amazing that that survived into a feature film directed by 
Darth the Vader, guy yeah. who's being impersonated. But it's um, but it also shows his range. Like he's never done a performance quite like that before. And in that moment, you can sort of see, oh, if he'd had Clooney's career, he probably could have pulled it off. Yeah, and it's interesting, and it'll be interesting to see what he does, you know, in the you know the last whatever third of his career. And what was the film they the last duel that they were? I didn't see that. that yeah, it's worth seeing. It's um, I, I don't think it's the secret masterpiece that everybody came away thinking it was. The structurally, it's just it defeats itself, and um. The, it's the tripartite structure is, or the triptych structure is unnecessary ultimately because it doesn't do anything with it. It just shows you the same events from different perspectives. But Damon is great at playing someone who is maybe not as good a person as he insists that he is. And in his performance of it, that's really interesting. And then Affleck is just with the blonde hair and the, and the libertine thing is having the best time. And right. it's fun because you just, you're allowed to remember everything about their relationship together to see them in the three scenes they have together where it's just like they're one of them is this amazing textured multi-layered actor and the other one is just as good but he is goofing on it and it's so much fun to watch that dynamic happen well and i kind of feel like they i was either read or heard so i think they wrote that one sort of as therapy for ben like it's, it's like okay you're in a bad place come over to my house every day and write and we'll oh i didn't know that I think so. I think that would be really nice. Yeah, I could be completely wrong about that, but that's that's, I I heard that. So, um, yeah, yeah. I like to believe that. I I mean, I know they're the public version of them is that they're supportive friends, but you you can't conceive of what it's like to go through something like their careers, and so that they do still stay in touch and have each other's back does seem. You know, they're the only two people in the world who've had that experience, and I I think it's kind of healthy that they still manage to uh, hold on to each other. Well, yeah, and it's interesting just to look at the dichotomies of both those careers because you know Ben Affleck has led such a public meltdown life, whereas Matt Damon has kept it all pretty locked down on the personal side. Like you know, I mean, it's just it it seems polar opposite. Um, but yeah, I, I who know? I mean, I've never met them and don't know them, but they do seem like they are still friends. Yeah, and I, I'm having interviewed both of them. They do feel like they are at least. Now, like in their middle age, in their early middle age, even though they still kind of look boyish, they're, they've, they've come through it. Like they're both, as as artists, they seem to know what they want to do and they seem to understand what they're good at, which oh, again, yeah, yeah, like because yeah, they I, were I, tempted I with all the other stuff throughout the, yeah, the, the yeah, early 2000s. Is, is crazy like those they're smart guys. <laughs> There's yeah. no, no doubt about it. And that was the interesting thing too, like the, uh, uh, what, what is it, uh, Robert, who's the guy, the screenwriter? Um, you'll never read uh, Hollywood. Oh, William yeah. Goldman. Yeah, who had like the, had to deny that he wrote that that screenplay. Yeah, it, it's like okay, these guys were like I don't know. They wrote it for over seven years. It's not that inconceivable. The guy went to the guys that went to Harvard and were around that could write that screenplay. Like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean Goldman. I think Goldman was just doing a lot of script doctoring for Miramax generally, right? Uh, on their in-house productions, but. His style is so much more Goldman's style is so much more structural. Like it would have, it would have had a better engine, I think, than just people sitting in rooms talking. And that's the strength of it. I mean, it's absolutely a movie written by actors, for sure. And it and it, and it sort of has, and they, you know, it has echoes of <clears throat> Reservoir Dogs with the talking. Mm-hmm. It's such a, I mean, obviously, it's 
the whole violence of Reservoir Dogs. And then also Diner. I mean, Diner's just sitting around talking. I mean, that, and it, it kind of reminded me, I haven't seen Diner in forever, but like, uh, you know, or my dinner with Andre, especially, but all like those types of movies. And I'm trying to think, do we see those as much anymore? You know, I don't know. Do we? I think they're coming back just because we're at a place now where micro budget forces it, where, where if you're good enough to build a story around people in rooms, you can get that movie seen now in a way that it wouldn't have been possible even 10 years ago when they were being drowned out by mid-range dramas, but the mid-range dramas have all gone to Netflix or, you know, streaming and disappeared. And yeah. so now suddenly there's value in something like Anne at 13,000 feet, where you're just with one person in the frame and nothing else is happening. You're, you're focused on, on Derek and that is the movie and the people right. she interacts with. You can get away with that as long as you, you know, as long as you make it flow and you present it artistically. I mean, All My Puny Sorrows is a film about people talking. It is. About <laughs> but in conversation over decades. Yes, it is a film about people talking. Yes, uh, yeah, but I, but it doesn't. Not not my. I'm not talking about only Peter Soros, but it, it it. I'm trying to think if we've seen like the diner, like the dialogue for the sake of dialogue, and and I, oh, Google I Hunting doesn't do that quite as much, except when those guys are together. Like it, it's almost like the Pulp Fiction McDonald scene harkens to the layaway of the hamburger for six cents you know, a week until you get your hamburger when they're driving with Casey Affleck in, in, in the car. Yeah. So the hangout sequences, like stuff where you're just drifting along with people while they reveal themselves through dialogue. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and as you say, like if it was William Golan, he would probably had a, a bigger engine in there, but they were content to sort of let those things just roll along. I mean, the other thing that was interesting to me was the casual, uh, like inappropriate relationship with the uh, Stella stars again, character, like just like basically trying to lay, get laid with his students. Like, yes. and just, like, you know, we can talk about erotica and whatever, like if you want to go to, out to dinner and talk about erotica, that was just like, wow. Like that wouldn't just, I mean, it just wouldn't happen today. Or, yeah. I mean, you wonder why it was included in the Miramax picture where just casual seduction was supposed to be okay, but just, so gross when you look at it in the rearview mirror. I mean, it has been 25 years. I guess it's fair to. to no, no, absolutely, absolutely. You're sort of looking at the lens, but and was that it was interesting to see those as such sore thumbs in the whole film because it doesn't. Stellan Sarsgaard's character. It makes no difference whether he sleeps with that. Like that line out of the movie makes no difference to the movie. Yeah, and I think there's like three or four of them that way. Uh, in, sorry, in the movie, and you're just like, okay, what? Is that what was that just how everybody was back then? Like, was that just kind of like, okay, like, now obviously it had to have been because this movie would have been tested. And, you know, it, like now, if people are looking at people, are like, what the fuck are you doing? You got, you have to take that line out of the movie. Yeah. I wonder if maybe it's just a sign that, uh, not a sign, it's a way to sort of show that Will's world isn't what it could be, even if he stays at Harvard, even if he stays there, he won't be happy because the morality is so slimy and that everybody's just looking for a reason to exploit him. It's, you know, Maguire's the only person who doesn't want something from him, really. Skylar even wants, she wants love. She wants him to open up to her. Maguire just wants him to be himself. Right. But I, th but I think they did, I think they did it effectively when they had that, that party, when, you know, they told, like they told the stars young character, Hey, like somebody solved the thing, but you know, they started with a shot of the, uh, the acapella group. And then they went like, it was so red ties and it was so kind yeah. of not over the, it, well, it was over the top. And, 
And then the other scene, of course, was when he burned the, like he, he humiliated him by burning the, uh, the solution. Like, it's like, okay. So I don't, maybe they thought it did, but it, it was just kind of a weird, gross moment. <laughs> yeah. It feels like too big a reach for the comeuppance he gets, right? Like he's not, he's not brought to heel for that action for his sleaziness. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's brought to heel for his arrogance, his pride, that the idea that, you know, I don't want to go to the reunions because people like you look down at me and, and go fuck yourself basically. Um, but I, and I, there was a couple other references like that where you, but you do sort of say, okay, well that was, that was made during that time. And that I guess was normal. Cause I don't, I don't think it was a person. I don't think it was a character. They could have done it. So we like 18 different ways rather than that. Yeah. It's just like a lazy shorthand. Yeah, to to demonstrate just how undesirable this guy is as a fa- yeah. as a father figure, as a mentor, maybe that's part yeah, of it. Think that Will is looking for one and not getting one. But it was interesting. I mean, and I think that role was was an interesting one to play because he wasn't totally unlikable either. Because he he was the guy that recognized. Like it was interesting, like what he actually wanted. Because in promoting Will, he was almost making himself irrelevant or his own genius irrelevant. Like, so that was an interesting, I don't like, I I sort of think of that now. It's like, what, what do you think that character wanted? Because he was ultimately humiliated and he probably would have been humiliated. And he, you know, he lived in this bubble of adulation. He walked in like a rock star to the lectures. He had his acolytes following him around. I mean, it was sort of a top president, you know, he won the fields medal, all this kind of stuff. So I didn't find him totally unlikable because he was actually trying to help Will. But I, I do at the end of the day wonder for himself, I mean, for the greater good of humanity, which he talked about, of course, like you only get him, like if Albert Einstein hadn't been born in the Unabomber sort of thing, great. Mm-hmm. But what do you think, what do you think that character wanted by help? Like it actually doesn't make sense that he's helping him considering his character is like this, doesn't, you know what I mean? I, yeah, I guess I just assumed that he was figuring he'd, use him that he would be like he'd be the kingmaker there he'd be drafting on on his success and his name would be forever associated with his genius that he'd he'd nurtured and discovered because the story right i mean that's how they sold the movie the story of a guy who is just a janitor but he's also a genius so if he's telling that story to people he gets to be dining out on that for the rest of his career you know i can't i'm not smarter than him but i can use him yeah, but I mean, but he, all, but he was also trying to get him jobs other places. Like he, so you think it's just the idea that I'm the guy that discovered this guy? It yeah, was, and then whoever he ends up with will owe him a favor. It's again, it's a way of using people that he seems to be comfortable with throughout the entire picture. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it just it was it's interesting. And then I mean, the one scene I thought was <laughs> sort of totally outside the movie entirely was when the ben, when Ben Affleck dressed up as for that job interview. Yeah. <laughs> It's just like, yeah, I think that was right out of train spotting the year before. Like they just, they remembered the interview scene in that with uh, you and Bremner on speed and thought, yeah, we can put that in. Like there's, there was, again, it's the Miramax thing, right? Once, if you saw everything they released over the nineties and early two thousands, as I did, you see the pieces that always recur. You see the things in the, in the stuff that was produced in house that someone insisted on plugging in the same way every horror film that came out of dimension was marketed the same way with cast in like black sweaters and white t-shirts or something. They all had the same campaigns. They all had a scene where this happened. They all had a, they all had the full, the after scream, they all had a fake scare at the beginning. It just, 
he, uh, the Weinsteins created this assembly line of culture and they either pulled people into their orbit, like Lassie Halstrom and made them do one a year. And sometimes it won an Oscar and sometimes it would just swept under the rug or they bought something from the outside and remade it. Remember they did dozens of those uh, and they put the original on a shelf that you never see again. And here somehow a movie comes out and, uh, you know, again, I don't want to crap all over Shakespeare in Love. I think it's perfectly pleasant film and it's got some really nice performances, including an incredible self-aware Ben Affleck performance Right, um, where you have artists working on something and it just happens to be the product of a, the fruit of a poison tree. But it was possible to make a good movie for Miramax. I think you just had to be powerful enough to stand up to Weinstein or to work around him. I mean, for all I know, Skarsgård's character is a version of Harvey that they're just trying to mock quietly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, for sure they were put. You, it was must see, pretty much must see whatever they put out. I mean, yeah. you know, once Disney bought them, they were just unstoppable for about ten years. Yeah, and it is amazing that it just that's just all <laughs> disappeared. And there, I don't think there's. I mean, obviously the the industry and the economics have changed, but who would be who would be the modern kingmaker today? I'm just trying to think. If I don't think there is one, is there? Maybe A24, like as a stamp, as a brand, but not as an individual person. I don't know. And like Fox Searchlight, of course, like they're, I mean, companies. Yeah. But like sort of who's the, you know, like it's not even like even at Netflix or Amazon or Apple that you can say, okay, well, here's the person they, 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 they exist. And I've met some of them, but it's not like, okay, here's, I don't know, like the John or whatever the, you know, the producer or any, it's sort of, it's just more diffuse these days. Yeah. No, I think now, I mean, it's probably, God help me. It's probably Marvel, right? Like somebody gets picked to make a Marvel movie, Kate Shortland or uh, Destin Daniel Cretton, and they're going to work forever. Even if it's not like you make a, you make a billion dollar comic book movie, you can make five indies right off of that. Right. It's just, that's an interesting thing. Like, uh, like it's Chloe Zhao. Is is that how you pronounce her name? Is is she, yeah is she like after her big like what she she just gotten smaller now she must be huh i assume after well but she just won best picture for nomadland right like she's the exception to the exception and she's in the unique position of having done both right like the massive marvel picture and the critical oscar winning success so she'll be fine but i'm i'm curious to see like i mean uh kate shortland made black widow what's she gonna do next and and ned benson co-wrote it he made the disappearance of eleanor rigby which was one of my favorite films of the last decade and the idea that there's an interoperability there that another film that was actually butchered by harvey weinstein but um the idea that you can drift back and forth uh now and that's a viable career path if you get selected i mean who knows what happens next yeah, I mean it's interesting. Well, because you know David Benioff, the Game of Thrones guy, is like he he wrote a great novel, City of Thieves, and I don't really know the timeline of that, but yeah, but I I think it's well, I mean I think television is attract like you know obviously drawing most of the talent right now. Um, and yeah, we will always make movies, but <laughs> yeah, well, and television is where you get the hangout stuff, right? Television is where you can have five minutes of scenes interspersed in an hour long episode of something where people just stand around and talk about pop culture over a burger. Yeah. So what, so what do you think in, in the, in the television equivalent is, is goodwill hunting then? Oh, interesting. Um, this is going to sound weird, but something like Gilmore girls or Ginny and Georgia, where dialogue is valued dialogue and in, interaction is valued more than, um, 
more than plot progression. Like you can have an episode where nothing really happens, but people talk their feelings through. With the and with the same and quote unquote on integrity is something like Goodwill Hunting. Do you think? I mean, if the right creator has it, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I mean, um, if you like put it in the right, are you seeing Starstruck? Yeah, I'm loving it. I haven't finished the new season, but we we're, we're watching it right now. I think we have one left in season yeah. two, and yeah, it, that's Notting Hill the, the series, right? Like it is exactly the same thing, but flipped in a way that makes it more interesting and also is compressed enough to run. You know, you can watch the whole thing in one night. I was also going to suggest May Martin's Feel Good, which is on Netflix. It's a two-season, six-episode run from Channel 4 and Netflix. It's set in the UK, and and May plays a version of themselves where, um, how can I put it? It's a, it's a love story. It's a, it's a, a romantic comedy disguised as uh, a, steer- well, actually, no, it's a love story about anxiety and depression disguised as a romantic comedy, but it's really smart about everything. And and I did watch the first one in a single, the first series in a single night and loved it. And the second season is really just as good. It's different, but it's, it's more about uh, evolving past your problems. That's actually, that's why I think it's coming up in parallel to Goodwill Hunting because they're both about protagonists who are incredibly good at what they do, but also really, really good at getting in their own way and and self-sabotaging. Well, and that's <laughs> to bring it to us all my puny sorrows, of course. Well, <laughs> that's the plot of all my puny sorrows. Yeah. So, I mean, to that end, really, because um, the podcast always wraps up the same way. Uh, is there is there anything of Goodwill Hunting that you borrowed or lifted or outright stole for all my puny sorrows? I'm trying to see it and I don't, but I guess no, the relationship I- between the two leads is sort of there. Yeah, but I it wasn't on my, it wasn't on my radar because I had such strong source material. But I do think that sort of going back to my original point that the this idea that you could go from obscurity to having a career, I think was something at that point that I was like, oh, well maybe any of this is possible, which I think was the takeaway for me in trying to navigate my way through or even think there was a possibility that I could navigate my way through. And I, and I, so, you know, as you're always looking for whether, you know, a, whether you're going to be relevant, B, whether anybody is going to care and, you know, see where it's going to go. And I, and I do think that even though that origin story was pretty fake and manufactured in a Hollywood way, it, it was something that I thought, okay, well, there is a pathway. Yeah. And if, you know, Harvey Weinstein doesn't pick up your film so much, the better. <laughs> yes, exactly. He could have buried it. So it went to Samuel Goldwyn. They did a nice job releasing it. So it was all fine. Yeah. Yeah. See, it all worked out. I just, I was like, what would he want to see? Would, would they, would because Miramax could have easily structured an Oscar campaign for Cromwell around it, right? Like he's. Yeah. I think that, so when still, it's always interesting when you're, when a film comes out, like, you know, you write these things over a number of years and they go into production. You don't have any idea sort of what the landscape has. But when we were editing Still Mine, Amour was at Cannes, like it just as we were finishing. So that was May and we were getting ready for Toronto in September. Mm-hmm. And I remember like with the editor, I think, I don't think like I, I don't think the space is good enough like or big enough for two old people films. So he he very well could have taken it and buried it. Because I think they had a more like no, that was Sony. That was Sony Pictures Classics. Okay. They might have might have counter programmed it. 
but they were, it was already going like it was like we were, we would have never, I don't think sort of gone up against that one. Um, but it was, you know, I don't know what, you know, it's always interesting when you go to Toronto and sort of see, you know, especially over the years, because you go fairly infrequently and just sort of track, like I remember with St. Ralph, I think we had five offers from Japan and it was, it ended up doing huge business in Japan. And then you go one week and they're like, okay, what do, what do you think about Japan? And they were like, well, Japan's not buying these films anymore. <laughs> so it's, and just over the years, sort of, you know, what, what, you know, what the sort of looking at, you know, Matt and Ben selling a script for $600,000 to now how it's all changed. And again, not like it just shifted in different ways, not neither good nor bad, just the evolution of it. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think, I think you could probably, you would have to make Goodwill Hunting for $675,000 now. Like that's, that would be the budget that would be afforded to something that small and that, it would you know, be hard. yeah, I mean, untested. It, the problem is now too, is if you either you have to make it completely outside the system and, you know, like I'm a member of the Directors Guild of Canada, the Writers Guild, if you use uh, actors that are a member, like it's really hard to make something outside the system using professionals, which I think is a is hard because I, I, I don't know how you'd make that movie for $675,000. Yeah. Well, you shoot it in Toronto like they did, but only- <laughs> they made it for 10 million. I mean, that was the other thing about that film looking at the like trying to you know find the toronto locations in there um, yeah it's, it's it surprised me i did not know when i first saw it that any of it had been shot here and now it's a little more obvious that the stuff is a soundstage but i'm it still does a really good job it does a really well it wasn't it, they shot they shot for sure shot stuff on location like that's yeah. he's going into that interview at the end there um like one of the actors, Jim Maloney was like, Oh, Jim Maloney's is a security guard there. So clearly that was somewhere in Toronto, but yeah. I mean, I, I, they said, I think it took place. I think the filming was April to June, which is, a, I mean, it's, it's a long time to film. So they might, I bet they filmed in, in around Boston for at least a month. Oh, I think so. Yeah. And um, certainly the like Wikipedia has a whole section on the Baskin Robbins, Dunkin' Donuts where the, how do you like them? Apple scene happens. Right. So, yeah. And that, so it was, I, I wonder why they came to Toronto. Like it was a tax credit. I must've been like, why don't, like it's a, it's a pretty small film and they're, they shot so much stuff in Boston. Like, I wonder what the reason to move the whole unit to, or, you know, to, to have another unit in Toronto would have been. I think, well, if, again, if Wikipedia is to be believed, it was because they couldn't shoot at Harvard. Um, they were not like Harvard doesn't allow them, did not at the time allow productions. And while, again, I don't know that this is true, but I love the idea that, um, uh, John Lithgow intervened to get them to license some space, but for the most part, they had to do U of T and central tech as, uh, lab locations and school locations for the interiors. Right. Yeah. I, I saw that, but you got to think like, there's like, I don't know, you know, there's B there's Boston university, Boston college, like. Like, if they, like those aren't that, those aren't locations that are that, spe- like they're not specific to Toronto, certainly. So it was like, which is an interesting, I mean, it's more really in the weeds of a production decision. Like what was the economics to, to be in Toronto? Yeah, and it was probably just tax credits in the dollar. I mean, it yeah, was like 1.4 at the time. It was, you got a lot more for your dollar if you came to Toronto, I suppose. I don't know. It, it is a weird, 
like of all the films that were shot one like spotlight did it too but at least with the exteriors you can recognize street signs and things it's uh there's nothing there's nothing that uses the city at all in in goodwill hunting like you, you mean you can't you can't tell what's what's Toronto essentially is what you're saying. No, I mean if I knew I knew it would be interiors. If you told me that, then it's like oh that's a no, set. No, that's I, a agree, set. I agree a hundred percent. Like there was because there was one scene where they're in the back alleys. I'm like, did they shoot this like say in the annex or something like that or College Street? Like you're kind of, but it's like I don't know. Like uh, no, I I agree. There wasn't one where you'd go okay. Like when you like Jack Reacher was shot in Toronto and it was for Atlanta and they did a great job making it look like Atlanta, but you can go, okay, that's, I know where that is. There was the Amazon one, show. Yeah. Guelph, 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 Guelph. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't one, uh, one scene in Goodwill hunting that I could have gone. Okay. That's, that's Toronto. No, no, it doesn't. It's, it, we are truly invisible in, in that film, which is, I guess, good. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> because it was definitely a Boston film. My thanks to Michael McGowan, whose new film All My Puny Sorrows is now playing in Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, and opening in Winnipeg on Friday. Go catch it on National Canadian Film Day. That'd be nice. Thanks also to Bonnie Smith. She knows what she did. Michael's not on Twitter, but you can keep track of his movie at Mongrel Media, all one word, and you can find Goodwill Hunting on Blu-ray and DVD from Lionsgate in the U.S. and Entertainment One in Canada. It's also streaming on Netflix, Crave, and Super Channel in Canada, and on HBO Max and DirecTV in the U.S., and, of course, it's available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. And once again, I remind you that the first year of the show is available for download for just 20 bucks at payhip.com Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. Payhip.com Semcast. Seriously, they're good apples. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.